Hey there, and welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. This is Brett, and uh, we're back with another episode. Uh, my apologies for disappearing for the last couple of weeks. Um, we've just had some pretty crazy stuff go on here. Um, we had one of our children had to be hospitalized for something, and uh, fortunately that's all taken care of. And um, yeah, she's good now. And uh, we've uh, all been a little under the weather and had to take time off work and all sorts of stuff. But uh, nonetheless, we are um, all back to 100% health. Uh, everything is back on track. And uh, that is why I'm bringing you another episode. Uh, also, actually have like, I think two or three episodes that are already done. Um, so there's no shortage of, uh, of, of good conversation uh, coming up. Um, we have a bit of an interesting situation here uh, with this podcast because this is actually an old podcast that I recorded four years ago. And I was contacted by Dr. Chris Exley, who's my guest on the show. And he said to me, hey, I went looking for the podcast and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. So uh, sure enough, I went back into the archives. I went back onto Apple Podcasts, uh, went into my hosting site and it was gone. So I don't know what happened. Um, but uh, suffice to say that his work has become incredibly controversial, uh, so there might be something there. And uh, what we're going to do is republish this. So for longtime listeners of the show, you would have uh, heard this episode. And if you're newer to the show, this is a really great episode uh, all about aluminum or aluminium, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, Professor Exley is uh, pretty much the world's authority when it comes to aluminum research. Uh, he has been researching this for the better part of uh, 35 years or so and um, has dedicated pretty much his whole life to this. And uh, in this episode, which again, remember, is four years old, uh, what we get into is we get into a lot of the, you know, the background of aluminum, uh, what the... Uh, environmental impacts are, why are we seeing so much aluminum now in the environment, uh, the health impacts of aluminum. And of course, we get into some of his research with regards to things like Alzheimer's, autism, and so forth. And of course, anytime you bring up, um, especially the autism word, uh, automatically, you know, and of course, we talk about vaccines as well. Anytime you bring up these subjects, um, automatically, you are sort of in a different uh, classification of, uh, of researcher suddenly. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to post this, our, this podcast today. And I'm going to post the, our new podcast that was recorded uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to post that right after. So there'll be two episodes coming up. And I would encourage you if you haven't listened to this one, it's very, very fascinating. Um, we talk also about how you can actually detoxify using silicon rich water. Um, so it's a very, very interesting conversation. And uh, of course, if anyone has um, anything to say about aluminum, it's definitely going to be Dr. Chris Exley, then I would encourage you to go and listen to the new episode. And uh, we sort of do a bit of a recap on this one, a very short recap. And then we actually spend most of our time talking about what happened to him and uh, basically how he has been ostracized by the scientific community, by the media. Um, he has basically had to forfeit his position 
at the university. Uh, they took away all of his funding. So a very, very um, crazy story, unfortunately. And and as you will hear in the new episode, um, unfortunately, this type of thing is pervasive in the scientific community, which raises serious questions about, you know, the mantra that we hear over and over, which is trust the science, right? Or we hear things like evidence-based medicine. And uh, I think that um, certainly what I have been pondering for quite some time now is uh, when we talk about evidence, uh, we have to question what evidence is this based on? And are we seeing all of the evidence or are we just seeing part of the evidence? Uh, when we talk about science, um, I'm a huge fan of science, right? The, the scientific method. But once again, are we seeing all of the science? Are we seeing an objective, unbiased presentation of all of the scientific facts? Or are we seeing a curated version that is geared towards um, catering to a certain narrative or a certain story. So that's going to come up on uh, part two of this aluminum um, bonanza, if you will, uh, with uh, Dr. Chris Exley. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to actually repost this. Uh, you'll hear the audio is a little rough because um, that's uh, before we polish things up in the studio. And uh, we had different mics and all that sort of stuff. But nonetheless, um, this was a phone conversation between myself and, uh, and Chris. And I think you're going to learn a ton of stuff. Um, so that's really about it uh, from my side. Um, I would once again, if you're not signed up to the mailing list, we've got a couple of things that are coming up. Um, just FYI, uh, we are launching a group gut health program, which is very, very exciting. Um, it's a hybrid program. So it's a combination of one-on-one -on -one care um, delivered in a group setting. Uh, so that's uh, quite interesting. And, uh, and I'm very, very excited. It's been many months of working on this program and finally bringing what I've done in a one-on-one -on -one setting um, in my own private clinical practice and bringing that into a group setting. So um, that might appeal to you. So join the mailing list. Um, we've got a couple things coming up. Uh, we'll also be having a webinar that's going to be coming up next week and um, talking about uh, total gut transformation and all that good stuff. And then uh, looking ahead, um, I'll, I'm also planning on doing a uh, probably a one day or a half day workshop on adrenal gland dysfunction. Right, so really, really digging into adrenal stress testing, uh, getting into the nuances and subtleties of that, and then of course, uh, what we can do to help balance and support adrenal gland dysfunction. So, uh, uh, jump on the email list so I can uh, stay in contact with you. And uh, of course, um, depending on when you're listening to this, I might have some stuff down in the show notes as well. Okay. Um, Last word before we hop into this, uh, our show sponsors once again, uh, Energy Bits, uh, Blue Green Algaes. Uh, if you haven't grabbed some yet, you can go to energybits.com. Uh, super, super clean, nutrient-dense Blue Green Algaes, Spirulina, Chlorella, and uh, you get 20% off with coupon code MASTERCLASS or MASTERCLASS. All right. So, um, yeah, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this one. And uh, without further delay, uh, here is Professor Chris Exley. All right, welcome to the show, Chris. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedule and meeting with me today. Mm, no, thanks for calling. Yeah, so Chris, I've been looking at a lot of your work uh, over the last few months, and, and I've got to say I'm sort of more recently tapped into your work, but I'm no stranger to the toxic effects of aluminum. 
so perhaps you can give us a bit of background as to how you got into being known as Mr. Aluminium or Mr. Aluminum and a bit of background in terms of where you've come from. Sure. Well, I mean, I've, I started my research on, uh, on aluminium uh, as an undergraduate student uh, up at Stirling University. So we're talking about, um, about 1984 when I was looking for a research project. And at that time, one of the main um, news stories with respect to the environment was, was what we still call acid rain, where we were seeing the death of fish in lakes and rivers, and we were seeing losses of uh, forests and trees, and we were trying to work out why this was. And this was occurring in areas of um, primarily the Northern Hemisphere, including the US, uh, here in the UK and Northern Europe. Um, in areas where uh, the uh, pH of the rain of the rainfall had changed substantially during the sort of period of um, you know the uh, industrial revolution, so the pH of rainfall was all of a sudden around pH four point five, when normally we would have expected it about one pH unit higher, about five point five, and in some areas. And again, mainly in the Northern Hemisphere, when this rain falls, the areas were not able to buffer this increased acidity. The result of which we found was that the, the, the waters became acidic, but most important, the aluminium or aluminum was released from the soils, from the rocks, into the waters. And this aluminium was killing the fish. So that was my first experience of the toxicity of aluminium. And so I worked on um, trying to work out the mechanism of aluminium toxicity. How does it kill fish? And then I also started to look at how can we protect against the toxicity of aluminium? And those became my uh, not only undergraduate research, but then my postgraduate research and my PhD research. And I guess since then, you know, my, my raison d'etre has always been to understand this particular metal in biological in a biological context in biological systems, because I, as I started myself to learn more about it, there are interesting sort of paradoxes, such as it is the most abundant metal in the Earth's crust. The Earth's crust is made of aluminium, silicon, and oxygen, and yet virtually all abundant metals or indeed abundant elements have some essential function in living things. And yet mm. this one, aluminium, had no essential function at all. So it became my research life and has remained so for the last 34 years to actually understand what aluminium is doing in living things. And of course that has over, well, probably more than 20, 25 years now, has also involved me looking at the way in which aluminium impacts on human health as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, that is something that we are, are going to focus on today is, is uh, human health. So that is quite interesting. I mean, I, I think that's uh, quite a perplexing paradox, if I, w if I can say that, because you know, you would think that something that's so abundant in the Earth's crust, uh, you know, how could it be that it has no biological positives? And how could it be that it would be so toxic? But, you know, I guess coming back to your point about the, the acid rain, um, would it make sense then that if 
under normal circumstances, if everything was in a quote-unquote balanced situation, that the pH of the rain, if it was normal, wouldn't allow the aluminum to become liberated from the Earth's crust? Would, would that, is that correct? Yeah, that, that, that is exactly right. That's exactly what happens. Hmm. We're looking at something where the, the pH shift is relatively um, sensitive. I mean, we're talking about the drop of, say, one pH unit is the difference between the aluminum remaining in an inert form within the aluminum silicate rocks of the Earth's crust against it being slowly released. And do, do, we, um, know, do we know why the pH of the rain has changed? Yes, because of um, in the Industrial Revolution and primarily the burning of fossil fuels. So because of burning coal and uh, oil and gas, we have released significant amounts of um, sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. And so what happened was the main, what we, what we would call the major acidifying anion of rainfall has always been carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is, dictated the pH of rainfall for 99.999% of you know, mm. the, the life of the earth. But the um, appearance of very significant amounts of sulfur dioxide changed that. And suddenly you got a very acidic anion becoming the major acidifying anion. And so the pH dropped from about pH 5.5 down to pH 4.5 or even lower down to pH 4 because of that shift. So it's the presence of these sulfur dioxides coming from the burning of fossil fuels. And of course, that was coincident with essentially the Industrial Revolution and, uh, and, and, and what followed. Yeah, and of course, the Industrial Revolution is, uh, you know, we kind of find ourselves uh, in the midst of that now with a whole host of other problems uh, to follow, but we won't go there today. Um, you, you, you mentioned uh, briefly about how aluminum's effect on fish kind of really got you interested in this. Have you noticed any other sort of environmental impacts um, fr from aluminum toxicity in, in the wild, I would say? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it's a, it's a, a very interesting point because clearly anything that lives in a surface water, a river, a stream, etc., that's been impacted by acidity and aluminium, yes, all of these creatures, whether it be from small little crustacea or the plants that live there or the fish, all of those have been affected and we have a lot of evidence to, on that. In terms of, for example, is there evidence that uh, the rabbits living in a field are affected by aluminium? And they, there isn't, the absolute. You know. yeah. I, we are getting more and more evidence, interesting evidence, from different animals, uh, um, different organisms in different areas of the world and primarily, let's say, in the last five or ten years, where we do find more aluminium inside of them than perhaps one might expect for something that has absolutely no function. Mm -hmm. And all of those probably have some sort of man-made phenomenon associated with them. So the only inverted commas natural toxicity of aluminium, and it's not natural because it's man-made anyway, because we created the acid rain to produce and release the aluminium, right. are probably associated with the acid rain phenomenon. So we're talking about uh, trees and other things in areas impacted by acid rain and lakes and rivers impacted by that. But we're not looking at, say, 
you know, aluminium as, as yet, or at least in that way, impacting upon uh, natural animal populations. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess, um, you know, let's bring another layer into the fold here, because up till now, we've really only spoken about the aluminum stored in the crusts, uh, in the Earth's crust, right? But, mm. you know, what, what, what about now, the fact that aluminum is ubiquitous in our lives, right? And all the products mm. that we use in industry, and so on, and so on. Um, you, you know, now, when we bring that into the fold, uh, surely, you know, we're, we're talking about a much larger and, um, I don't know, a little bit more serious uh, issue, right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, that's why, you know, I write about something called the aluminium age. You know, when I went to school, we learned about things like the Iron Age, the Copper Age, the Bronze Age. Well, for the last 120 odd years or so, uh, we have lived in what I call the aluminium age. And the aluminium age has come about um, primarily through three roots, all of which are related to man. I've told you about one, the phenomenon of acid rain because of the uh, acidification of the environment because of the burning of fossil fuels. Another one would be through intensive agriculture, where intensive agriculture has acidified soils and released the aluminium there so that many soils are now uh, so much free aluminium that they're no longer able to support arable growth. But as you suggest, the other one is that towards the end of the 19th century, we, some wonderful science appeared which enabled us to take uh, inert aluminium silicate rock and create aluminium metal and from that create aluminium salts. And that was the real advent of the aluminium age when all of a sudden a metal which was pre- previously only thought of in the, in, the, in the same way as gold or silver or diamonds as a very precious metal because it costs so much to make it we now had something which we could be could be used in so many different ways and, and subsequently was. So we had the birth of the aluminium age and that was simply due to our ability to take aluminium rocks, which would be inert in terms of biology, create aluminium metal and from those aluminium salts and then the aluminium age took, took place. And we're still mm. living in it now, of course. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll obviously get to a bit more of that. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up intense agriculture because I know a lot of our listeners, you know, we, we are um, all well-versed in the organic movement and small-scale organic farming versus large, um, you know, industrial-type operations. Mm. Uh, do, do you think that the widespread use of things like fertilizers and agricultural chemicals um, are also to play here, at least in part anyway. And, and second to that, do you think that, or do you know, um, is the aluminum that's being liberated from the soil, at least in the farmer's field, is that actually landing up more and more in the food that we're eating? Um, well, the application of intensive agriculture where essentially we, we tried to grow too much on too little a resource so that the resource becomes uh, 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 reduced in terms of minerals and everything. And then we tried to replace them by putting in fertilizers. Yes, this is uh, one of the uh, major ways through which we are acidifying our environment. And the, the, as I said, I think the uh, statistics are that something like 30% now of all arable land has become acidified because of the activities of man. Um, and indeed, some of our attempts to make that better 
have not made it better, such as things like using uh, phosphate-based fertilizers um, and, and, other, and other things. So um, it, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly one way in which uh, the aluminium age is impacting upon us. And I mean, a good example of this is mo if you drink tea, as most of us do, tea has quite a high amount of aluminium in it. And people say, well, why has tea got a high amount of aluminium? And actually, if you look at the types of tea, the, the, uh, the black teas, which are primarily from the sort of Indian subcontinent mm -hmm. area, these are the ones that contain the most aluminium as opposed to the sort of more green teas that you get from sort of uh, China and, and associated areas. And one of the reasons is that we... That, and the British are probably responsible for this, is that <laughs> we, we didn't want to spend money buying tea from China. And so we decided to start growing our own tea and, and grow it in those colonies that we had control over. And so, so we started to grow it in India and uh, Bangladesh and uh, those areas where now are very famous for tea, but we grew it intensively. And the, the, the sort of serendipitous thing about the tea plant is, and of course it's the reason why it makes a good cup of tea, is it has these chemicals called catechols in there, which are the things that give you the nice brown color of your tea anyway. Yeah, the but tannins, also, right? That's right. Yeah. And these form very strong complexes with aluminium. So the tea plants were naturally um, resistant to growing in these areas, even though these areas became more and more acidified and accumulated more and more aluminium. So you can see there is a sort of, in that instance, that is a way in which we are now exposed to aluminium through drinking cups of tea. We are also, in other areas, where you get the acidification of the, of the land and it increased amounts of aluminium, you, one of the things that we're trying to do is grow more aluminium resistant crops, which means again, the crop can take up more aluminium without coming in, into any harm. Now, oh, wow. again, you can imagine that what that means is in the longer term, yes, we might have a type of wheat or some sort of cereal, which now grows well in one of these acid areas, but it will have a much higher content of aluminium that is really probably good for any of us. Yeah, we wow. won't notice that perhaps until later on in life. So you can see we're probably in many ways storing up a potential aluminium problem for ourselves, a problem which is, is impacting today, but is likely to impact even more in the future. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about the sort of bioaccumulation and, and the health impacts in just a second. Um, you know, mm -hmm. before, before we get there, uh, what, are the, you know, what are the common sources of exposure uh, for us as human beings? Where are we getting most of our aluminum that's coming into the body? Yes, again, it's a, it's a good question because it's not, it's, it, it will depend very much on individuals. And then it may also depend a little bit on where you live. Um, it will certainly depend upon lifestyle. So, for example, if I was to say, if, if I was to say, well, what is the, what would be, what type of lifestyle would result in a, the highest, least exposure to aluminium, then you'd probably be living in a city because we do 
taking aluminium uh, in the through throughout through the air and in in the atmosphere. You would probably be um, you might be a smoker because smoking is a major way of getting aluminium inside your body. It's the aluminium is actually not only not only in the tobacco but also in the uh, other parts of the cigarette. And interestingly, with this uh, increasing in interest in vaping these days, we've just done a piece of research to show that the electronic cigarette is almost as bad as the real cigarette for exposure to aluminium. Oh, wow. Maybe even worse. And that's because the internal part where, which heats up to vaporize the vehicle that's carrying the nicotine, etc., is made of aluminium. Oh, wow. Okay. And so you, you get a lot of aluminium from vaping as well. So if you then had a diet which consisted primarily of processed foods and processed drinks, now because aluminium is used widely both in these processes, in other words, it's, it's part of the processing mechanisms, but also many of these types of foods and drinks are uh, subject to uh, contamination from the type of processing equipment that's used, cooking ware, etc. Uh, that would be something where you would be guaranteed a higher exposure to aluminium. And you know, if you if you then do things, uh, you know, one of the things we found a few years ago now was there's a lot of aluminium in things like sun creams and sunblocks. Yeah. Usually because it's been added and people think it's a good thing to have it there. It's, it's, it's in, in theory at least protecting against uh, ultraviolet rays. Uh, of course, if you apply an antiperspirant to, to your body during the day to protect yourself from sweating, then you are applying an aluminium salt. If you're someone who regularly takes things like aspirin or something of that sort, which are usually buffered with aluminium these days. So we could start to paint a picture perhaps of, an indiv of, of individuals who would have the highest exposure. And what mm -hmm. you have to throw it in the proviso is that in a room of any 10 individuals, if we, got, if we exposed those 10 individuals to exactly the same amount of aluminium, we would get an order of magnitude difference in, the, in how much aluminium they actually take up um, into their body and then for, therefore excrete it, for example, in their urine. In other words, there are other factors associated with individual physiology which make the difference between whether you are someone who is likely to absorb and retain a lot of aluminium versus the opposite. You might, have, uh, you might just, by pure chance, uh, be someone who uh, excretes it more easily or in fact absorbs less. Do, so do we, do, do we know? Take all these into account. Yeah, do we know uh, really, really quick without getting super deep here, but do you, could you perhaps shed a bit more light onto what some of those factors might be? I mean, are we talking about mineral stores in the body, detoxification capabilities, think, and stuff like that? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. This, this is, in many ways, for us at the moment, it's this is the million dollar question. Why mm. is it that some people under certain circumstances respond so poorly to the same dose of aluminium? Yeah, and, good, you know, good that, question. That can, that can, and that can take us on to the subjects, uh, the recent subjects of things like autism, of Alzheimer's, because what we're doing is it does appear that there are individuals who are probably genetically predisposed 
to uh, the absorption, retention, and potential toxicity of aluminium. And no, we do not know that. And you know, the only reason we don't know it is because we can't get any funding to look into mm. it. It's not because we haven't been asking ourselves this question for a long time. We have. Yeah. So, so let's, um, you know, uh, before we get into uh, vaccines, because I do want to spend a good chunk of time on vaccines, on autism, and of course, Alzheimer's. Um, are there any signs and symptoms that people should be really looking out for? Um, you know, because I know, I know heavy metal toxicity is, it's not an on off switch. It's not like one day you wake up, unless you were exposed to a mega dose uh, somehow, but you don't just wake up one day and, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I've got aluminum poisoning and that's it. Mm. You know, it's a slow progression that really accumulates over the course of your life. So are there any sort of early warning signs that people should be looking out for? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wrote something relatively recently um, in a paper where I asked this very question. I said, when, when I go and see my physician, my general practitioner, how will they know that I'm suffering chronic um, toxicity from aluminium exposure? And the answer is they would not. In other words, mm. we do not know. Um, because there, it, if, you know, if I was to choose one symptom that I might expect from someone who was perhaps retaining more aluminium and having a larger body burden of aluminium than, 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 than is uh, normal, if one can use that word, than something like tiredness. But let's be honest, tiredness is something that oh, is affects everyone. Attributed, <laughs> attributed to every other type of condition. Yeah. So trying to find something specific for that. Now, it, that doesn't mean, so what, one of the things that we've done over many years now is we have a, a way of estimating what's called the body burden of aluminium, how much aluminium is actually in the body. And we do that through urinary excretion of aluminium. And, and it, it's a particular way of doing it. It's not just you know, a very simple urine measurement. It, it, it's a little bit more elaborate than that. Mm. But from measuring urinary excretion of aluminium, we can get an idea of whether somebody has more aluminium in them than we might expect for their age, their gender, where they live, et cetera, et cetera. And so if that type of testing was widely available, then there might be an opportunity to diagnose uh, the beginnings of, um, you know, of, of chronic aluminium toxicity. But no, right yeah. now there is nothing, nothing symptomatic uh, to say this person is suffering from chronic aluminium toxicity. So what are your thoughts? Because, um, you know, uh, again, a lot of our listeners here are doing functional lab testing. We have naturopaths that are listening. And one of the ways that we would do those urinary tests, at least in a clinical setting, is to do what's called a DMPS push or something similar where we would actually sort of force uh, a certain amount of that aluminum out of the tissue and into the, uh, into the urine so that we could measure it. But another way that's fairly widely available to most people, at least through a practitioner anyway, is uh, hair mineral testing. And, and I, what, do, you know, is that an accurate method of testing in your eyes or do you think it's, uh, it's well, so-so? At the moment... I would say that uh, aluminium, looking, look, using hair as a biological indicator for aluminium body burden is not sufficiently well developed to be useful. I wish it was. It's something that we are trying to look at in our group, trying to get better. I know that it's widely available. I know that mm -hmm. many, many people 
have analyses done. I get sent these analyses at least once or twice every single week. And you know what? I nearly always say to them, I can't read anything into that because I don't believe in the methods, the methodology. I, I know that it's not sufficiently robust and well-developed to be really certain about something. Yeah. So that's why we developed the urinary test. Now you talk about uh, something to push the aluminium out, inverted commas. Well, exactly. <laughs> part of our, a brief explanation of our test would be, we, we, we would ask someone to take, a, to do a 24 hour urine sample and you know what that means, is collect all of the urine over a specified period of 24 hours. We would then ask them if on the following day to include in their everyday diet what we call a silicon-rich mineral water. This is any mineral water which has more than 30 parts per million as written as silica on the bottle. So in the US and Canada, well-known one would be something like Fiji water. Okay. We would say drink a liter of that water during your day, second day, and also collect a 24-hour urine sample while you're drinking it. So you've got two days. You've got one day when simply you collected a 24-hour urine sample just doing your normal every day. The following day, you would do your normal every day, but you would make sure that you drank at least a liter of the silicon-rich mineral water during that period. Now, what we can tell from those two analyses, we would do a measurement of the aluminium on day one, and we would do a measurement, total measurement of aluminium on day two. And if we see a substantial difference between those two, it's not necessarily about total amounts, it's whether we see a difference between them, it starts to give us an indication of whether someone is overloaded with aluminium or not. So we would expect to see in someone who is overloaded with aluminium a spike in their aluminium excretion on day two because we know through our research that silicon mm. facilitates the removal of aluminium from the body in the urine. Okay. Now, and if we were to see that, our next step is that we need to do that then for five consecutive days without the silicon-rich mineral water, followed by five consecutive days with. So, you, And then we would have enough data to say whether or not this individual was overloaded with aluminium or not. And so you can see it's quite involved. It wow. involves yeah. quite a lot of testing. Mm -hmm. And that is as robust and rigorous as we, we would need to be before I will say to someone, listen, you've got a problem with your aluminium, we need to do something about it. Yeah, and that, that, that's great. I mean, I, I can you know, clearly uh, see the limitations with that in terms of getting that out to the mass public and especially in a costly, uh, you know, sort of cheaper yeah. manner. Yeah, I, I totally get it. Um, so let, let's move forward here. And, you know, a big area that you've been researching that, in fact, you're, you're fairly well known for is um, aluminum and vaccines. So... Um, not quite sure where to start. I mean, I, I guess uh, let's just start with the fact that there is, in fact, aluminum in vaccines in the form of aluminum adjuvants. And yeah. is, is that a good place to start? And perhaps you can sort of take yeah. it from there? I mean, yeah, I mean, this is the reason why we look at this area. So let's not, we, we don't know, we don't research vaccines. That's hmm. not our area. Yeah. But wherever aluminium impacts upon the human body, we are interested in that. 
And so clearly the fact that we've used aluminium in vaccines as an adjuvant for nearly 100 years is of significant interest to us, and it's one of the reasons why we'd look at this. And we started to look at this perhaps in more intensely about 10 years ago when there were a series of scientific papers purporting to tell us how do aluminium adjuvants work in helping the immune response. And on reading these papers by esteemed immunologists in highly rated journals, I, it became quite clear to me that these people knew nothing about aluminium whatsoever mm. and that we needed to look at this in some detail. In fact, that I had been you know, remiss in many ways in not looking at it earlier. So we started a program where what we are doing is, in the first instance, is understanding the exact products that are used in vaccines, the exact aluminium salts as used by the vaccine manufacturers, understanding their physical, their chemical, and their biological properties so that we can actually understand two things. One is, how is it that an aluminium adjuvant is so effective in boosting the immune response? Very important to understand that because then you can tailor future vaccines to be more effective, etc. Mm -hmm. But secondly, why is it that a very small number but significant number of people having received an aluminium adjuvant show a serious adverse response to that? And we know that this is down to the aluminium adjuvant. This is not down to the antigen that you're being vaccinated against. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's due to the adjuvant. So why is it uh, what are the properties that we need to understand and what is it about those minority of individuals who respond differently that, that makes them susceptible? And so those are the areas that we study. And so uh, I guess um, just to sort of shed a bit more light and explain what exactly does the aluminum adjuvant do for the human body? <laughs> like what, what, what's the purpose yeah. of putting it in there in the first place? Well, what it allows us to do is two things. One is, you see, there are, there are live vaccines out there, and there are, to putting it simply, dead vaccines. Mm -hmm. so a, a live vaccine uses something which causes a disease and uses it in small amounts so that you only get a very mild form of the disease in order to get uh, the memory that's required to, for, for the vaccine to work. Right. But in the dead, inactivated antigen vaccines, they need, when, these, when these are added, if these were just injected into the body, nothing would happen. Absolutely nothing would happen. Maybe if you injected really, really, really high amounts of them, something might happen. But these antigens are normally not cheap. They're usually quite expensive. And so you want to use as little as possible. When you inject them with an aluminium adjuvant. Actually, all the aluminium is doing is producing toxicity at the injection site. Huh. And that's why you get a little, a little red mark. Everybody gets some sort of red mark at the injection site, and that is the toxicity of the aluminium adjuvant at the injection site. That toxicity essentially sends signals which allows cells, infiltrating cells, to come to the injection site, and thereafter they pick up the antigen, which is also there, and take it off to the um, the lymph nodes to, to initiate the uh, immune response. So the aluminium adjuvant works by being toxic at the injection site. 
And if the toxicity was only ever at an injection site, then probably none of us would worry about it because we could all put up with a little red mark for a short period Absolutely. of time. Absolutely, yeah. But what we are concerned about is when that toxicity gets translated elsewhere in the body. And that's what we're trying to understand. And of course, because, you know, vaccine injury, I'll just say very loosely here, and, and we'll point it uh, a little bit more towards aluminum, uh, it's not the same from person to person. And of course, it doesn't affect everyone the same way. Not everyone is affected at all. But uh, from what I'm gathering, we don't really know at this point who is more susceptible to damage versus not, right? I mean, that's kind of what you're looking at, right? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, one of the things that I'm pretty convinced about is that the majority of cases of serious adverse events involve an aluminium adjuvant. So we are talking about aluminium toxicity. So that's the one thing I think that, that we can be relatively confident about. But, but you're right. The, what happens is that, so for example, it could be the case in one individual that aluminium from the injection site gets transported let's say, directly into the brain. It's mm. possible. Whereas in another person, the aluminium may actually end up in the bone or it may end up being detoxified in the liver. Or in other words, that's the bit that we don't yet understand. There is yeah. something which is different about the way in which different individuals respond to these materials. And it, the material itself, you see, aluminium is toxic through its free metal cation called AL3+. So wherever AL3 plus ends up, it will exert toxicity. So if it ends up in your heart, you'll have heart toxicity. If it ends up in the brain, it's brain toxicity. So what we need to understand are the processes of why in some instances it goes somewhere, some instances it goes another, and, and what, are, you know, what are those signaling mechanisms, what are those translocation mechanisms involved? Yeah. And indeed, to a certain extent, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think is part of the travesty of aluminium adjuvants is because they are so, they, they are effective, one of the ways in which we've tried to boost their efficacy is simply by adding more and more. In other words, they are an incredibly... Uh, what's the right word? Uh, they are a, a, a blunt instrument in vaccination. Mm. If they were, if they were far better tailored in terms of the what they actually need to do to enable an immune response, then the collateral damage, which which uh, seems to be acceptable to some, that we're getting from having such a large amount of aluminium injected under, under the skin or into the muscle could be avoided in my opinion but no one wants to spend any money investing in this in uh, because they don't have to and the cheapest thing you know in a in a vaccine preparation in the total cost of a vaccine the cost of the aluminium adjuvant is equivalent to zero zero cents zero hmm. which is so low by comparison to the other components Right. So which, which obviously means that we should really be uh, investigating further, which is sort of what you're doing. So just to, just to pull some things together here, I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, full circle back to why some people, uh, you know, in terms of measuring their body burden, right, um, 
Mm. You know, there's, there's obviously those factors. Um, I think when we add to the fact now that the vaccine schedule, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but I know here in North America, I mean, over the last 30, 40 years, we've seen the number of vaccines that are given uh, has 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 exponentially grown as well. So, you know, I think when you pulling this all together, we're talking about increased exposure. Uh, and then, of course, coupled with um, the lack of or those other biological variables that really creates a, a significant problem. And, you know, not to say that this is the smoking gun with regards to autism, but when we look at the rates of autism, uh, having increased exponentially as well, one has to wonder at least. Uh, so perhaps, um, you know, l let's hop on to autism. Uh, so how, you know, uh, um, to preface this, do we know much about the bioaccumulation of aluminum in the body in, in terms of, you know, so I get these vaccines, they've got the aluminum adjuvant, great, and I get a whole bunch of injections, how does that stay in the body or do we feel like some of it gets flushed out or, you know, you know, and then of course from there, um, let's bring in the autism piece. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the amount of strong scientific evidence of aluminium in the human body is limited and it's limited simply because most biopsies come from people who, who have died, donated, you know, there, there's very, very few mm -hmm. people are giving up bits of tissue, et cetera, to have the aluminium content measured, and, and, and quite rightly so. So our understanding in those areas is really quite limited. Um, so, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons why we did the recent study um, on aluminium in brain tissue in individuals with a diagnosis of autism was because there had been one or two other studies, primarily looking at blood and urine and on occasion hair, where there had been an indication that individuals with autism might have a higher body burden of aluminium than would be expected. But at that point, and I've made this clip in, in, in interviews for recently, at that point, I didn't find any of this evidence in any way, um, you know, unequivocal. I, I, to me, it was very, very loose. However, it, it was worth, if we could, us trying to provide some more definitive data in this, uh, in this area. And we investigated whether or not there was uh, brain tissue available in the United Kingdom through the autism brain banks. And, you know, we were lucky and privileged enough to find out that uh, we, there, were, there, was a, there was tissue available that we could look at, um, tissue from 10 individuals in the Autism Brain Bank in the UK. And people have said, oh, there's only 10. But that's 10. That's how many there are. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, this is not, this is, <laughs> you, you cannot look at what isn't there. Uh, all, all, 10 individuals that, where there was sufficient tissue for us to do a diagnosis were included in this, in this paper. And so the idea behind it, in the first instance, it was because we've done um, aluminum in human brain tissue in many individuals now, nearly 100 before we did the autism work, we, wanted, we knew that we would have a good data bank to make comparisons with. 
And it, and the brain is, of course, to I think we all believe. I mean, we know that aluminium is neurotoxic. There's no, no there's no discussion about that. Everybody would accept that. So if you have aluminium in your brain, it cannot be a good thing. And so there was this possibility that that should be, you know we needed to know first of all whether the indications of um, that aluminium body burden people autism might be higher that there was there might be some connection between increased vaccination schedule for infants and autism and that might have something to do with aluminium these things had to be tested in some way and so that's why we did this study and sorry do you want you, do you want to say something no 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 uh, I, I just what were your sort of conclusions well i mean no one no one was more surprised by the data than i was i mean i was not expecting you know bearing in mind uh the individuals we looked at varied in age from 13 to 50 years of age so these were the donors that we had and we only had frozen tissue for five donors. So frozen tissue is required to do quantitative analysis. You cannot do uh, quantitative analysis on fixed tissues. You need deep frozen tissue. But even on those five individuals, I was not prepared for the data that came out, which essentially was telling us that in every individual, we are seeing significant amounts of aluminium in brain tissue and as i've said in the paper including in a, a i think a 15 year old boy amounts of aluminium which we hardly ever seen before in any other person so mm. you know that is a is one hell of a surprise and and was difficult in many ways to accept um except that we are the world's best at doing this we we've done it many 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 times before and we 100 percent believe in our analyses um, you know, we've heard, we, we've had a number of comments about these total aluminium saying, well, what about controls? Well, if there had been some controls, in other words, if uh, the brain bank, the brain bank gave us control tissue because that's part of the ethical agreement that we go through. But, uh, the, but the control tissue was from group, a group of people in their 40s and 50s who died of a range of different diseases. So we are looking at those as essentially as new cases. We're not looking at them as controls for people with autism. So it, but we're still able with having had this bank of data, as I said, for nearly a hundred human brains to look at these tissues and say, well, these are some of the highest we've ever measured. And why would that be? And in fact, you know, we do not know of any other data on people as young as we looked at here. So even though they're not infants, they're still children, some of them. And so for a child to have so much aluminium in their brain tissue was to begin with extremely surprising. You know, but people have concentrated on this total amount of aluminium. For me, this was not, this, this was not a deciding factor for me. This, is not, this was not something which made me think, right, aluminium must play a role in autism. To be honest, it wasn't. But when we then did the microscopy analysis and we found some of the most incredible data, in other words, we used fluorescence microscopy, a method we have developed to show where aluminium is in human tissue, and in this case, human brain tissue. 
and we did the microscopy on 10 individuals because we had fixed tissue available for 10 as, as opposed to just the five uh, for frozen uh, individuals for frozen tissue. And what we found was a, incredibly surprising. And that was that the aluminium in the, in the brain was not, as we had expected to find it, associated with the neurons in the brain. It was associated with the non-neuronal populations. And more specifically, it was associated with the, the types of cells, the housekeeping cells of the brain, the macrophages of the brain, mm. the types of cells that, for example, go to the injection site of a vaccine and carry the aluminium off to the lymph nodes and off to other places in the body. So this was an incredible and standout observation. The aluminium inside these particular types of cells. And even, even the, you know, the most terrible critic of our research who might try to say that all we're doing is measuring contamination. Well, you can't get contamination inside these types of cells. So whatever sort of criticism you want to make, this observation to me told me one thing. It tells me that there is a mechanism whereby a significant amount of aluminium can be transported into brain tissue from the periphery. Hmm. Because this is different to your everyday exposure to aluminium. In your everyday exposure to aluminium, the likelihood is <clears throat> that, that the accumulation of it in your brain tissue occurs over decades. What we're looking at here is, is the possibility that over much shorter periods of time, perhaps even within days or weeks of, say, an injection of an aluminium adjuvant, you could get a significant amount of aluminium in a certain area of the brain where it could produce toxicity in that specific area. And this was the outstanding observation of this research. Mm. Which is, I mean, that, that for me is, uh, wow, that's all I have to say. Um, you know, I think you're, uh, I'm also, it's interesting that you say the daily exposure, right? Because I've always, I've always said this, and, and I'm not 100% sure if I am absolutely correct. But anytime that we're exposed to things through the environment, we have these sort of innate um, barriers, right? We, we have the respiratory mm -hmm. tract, we have the skin, we have the digestive tract. So we're either going to ingest something, inhale it, or it's going to get absorbed through the skin, right? And, and of course, yeah. these are our natural defense mechanisms. So I've always, you know, intuitively sort of gone, well, what happens if you inject something right through the barrier? Like, like surely you're bypassing everything else and, uh, and, and that can then cause problems in the body. And I think that what your research is showing is that that's in fact is what's going on, right? Now, the other thing that's interesting to me is when you say the, the macrophages and that, I mean, we, we're talking about, um, are we talking about immune system components that are involved with controlling inflammation in the brain? Is, Absolutely. Would, we're, talking, we're talking about, um, you know, monocytes, uh, Involve, pro, you know, pro-inflammatory monocytes. Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. So, in, so indeed, our you know people people forget that one of the authors of our paper, Andrew King, is the chief neuropathologist of the London Brain Bank, and he 
is on our paper for a very, very good reason, that we need an expert. And he, along with actually a really good referee who we had of the paper, together were able to identify the, you know, the, the, types, of, the types of cells that we found inside the brain were glial cells or microglia. And then we were also able to see other types of more, of more macrophage and lymphocyte type cells which appeared, which were in the blood and appeared to be crossing over into the brain or were in the lymph and were appeared to be crossing over into the brain. So you've got not only cells that are actually quite heavily implicated in autism, the microglial cells are quite heavily implicated in, in what we know about autism. We have these cells which are absolutely full of aluminium and therefore are not going to be functioning normally. Aluminium you know, is a very cytotoxic. And we also have a mechanism for taking aluminium from the periphery and out, outside of the brain and taking it into the brain in these other cells, which we know translocate, go across the blood-brain barrier. So this, you know, this, is, this, this is the really alarming part of this story, not the total amounts of aluminium. The fact that there is a mechanism whereby significant amounts of aluminium can move from the main part of the body across the blood-brain barrier into the brain where they are likely at some point to die and release their aluminium. And they will release a really significant amount of aluminium into an area of the brain which could then produce inflammation in that area or some sort of other. In other words, they could almost like act like an adjuvant in the brain tissue. Right. It always, it always makes me laugh a little bit when I, particularly when you, you listen to the people from vaccine manufacturers and pharma and others, that if everyone accepts that aluminium adjuvants, the way uh, that aluminium acts as an adjuvant at an injection site. But they don't accept, for some reason, it can act as an adjuvant elsewhere. Why not? What, what's <laughs> happening here? What, what's unique about it being at the injection site? And the answer is nothing. Yeah. Aluminium can act as an adjuvant anywhere in the body, including in the brain. Well, and I think the other thing that's a little bit frightening for me anyway is, you know, your blood-brain barrier is very, very selective about what goes in. And so I, I kind of wonder to myself, you know, why and how does it become compromised in this situation to allow this into the brain? You know, most things will not yeah. go into the brain. So, well, well, I think first of all, we, you know, I one of one of the things I lecture on is the blood-brain barrier, and I and most people think of it a little bit like yourself as some sort of impenetrable barrier. The truth of the matter is, it is more selective than other barrier systems. But actually, you know, we, there are properties of the blood-brain barrier called residual leakiness, mm -hmm. <laughs> which means things leak in and things leak out. In other words, don't be too, one should first of all, first of all one shouldn't think that this is the all-conquering barrier which never mm -hmm. lets in anything which might cause any damage. We know we wouldn't have meningitis and things like this if, 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 if bad things couldn't get into the brain, blood-brain barrier. But the other thing is, yes, if its function is compromised, then that makes it more leaky. But you do not have to have a compromised blood-brain barrier for the types of cells that we've identified to cross it. What you usually need is a signaling mechanism to signal to those cells to move across. And we mentioned this 
in the autism paper. In other words, some sort of some sort of insult in an area of the brain, let's say a minor insult of some sort, producing an inflammatory type response, would then trigger rapid entry of further cells potentially carrying more aluminium going to this site. Hmm. So, and those do not need a compromised blood-brain barrier. They get through and between the cells by, you know, a, a known mechanism. Right. So this is a known, a known mechanism. Cells from our body go across the blood-brain barrier to help out in the brain. Right, which, which makes sense. I mean, otherwise your brain would never be able to be repaired or anything like that, right? Well, it, I mean, does, it, does have its, it does have its own systems. And that's what we call, you know, they're the glial systems and the microglia and others. But sometimes it needs help and it yeah. signals for help. And so one of the things we're trying to understand is, so one question would be, is there, is there something about signaling of these types of cells in those individuals which get an autism spectrum disorder, which is different to those that don't. And that could be possible. That's the type of thing we need to understand. Mm -hmm. Which, which so is a complex issue. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not easy because, I mean, everyone is so uh, you know, bio-individual in that sense. So to try and sort of you know, put a, a group A and a group B, uh, it, I think um, we have our work cut out for us. And uh, more specifically, well, we you, would, you have you your work the, cut out for, for yeah, you. The the system, yeah, but the systems that are available now, particularly with respect to you know, omics-type systems that are available, genomic-type systems, proteomic, I think could be used. And I, I'm quite confident that if the funding was available, we could start to identify susceptible individuals to aluminium. I think we know enough. I know enough about aluminium. Mm. I just need those people who know enough about the genes and the proteins and stuff to work with us, with us on that. Right. And we, we will get back to that because I, I do want to talk about some of the things that you're working on, um, the, you know, where you're headed uh, and what you're, what you're looking for so that perhaps any of our listeners and people uh, listening to this can actually help you out. Now, let, let's move on here and um, let's talk about Alzheimer's because... Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's um, obviously also affecting the brain. We know that aluminum has been implicated quite heavily. Are we looking at the same mechanisms as autism or are we looking at more long-term chronic exposure? Uh, because Alzheimer's is obviously, you know, really affecting elderly people uh, and not, not younger people. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, the, uh, I, have, I, I started my work in, in, in a, ro a potential role for aluminium and Alzheimer's disease in the early 90s. Um, and I, it was really a follow-up to the early studies which suggested aluminium was associated with the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease. So there was some suggestion there. So we were looking for mechanisms on how that could be. And the truth is, it's only... Well, actually, it, it, in December 2016... We published a study, and it's a little bit like my autism study, a study which made up my mind on this subject. And in that study, what we did was we were again had the opportunity and the privilege to measure the aluminium content of brain tissue from donors who died with something called familial Alzheimer's disease. Now, familial Alzheimer's disease is where individuals get Alzheimer's it can be as early as their 30s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, 
and they they have certain genetic predispositions which make them more susceptible to the disease. And mm. my question was, well, look, if aluminium is really involved in the disease, then surely we'll find some sort of link with familial Alzheimer's disease. In other words, a little bit like what I said about autism, maybe there's something about these genetic predispositions in familial Alzheimer's disease, which would mean that these people would absorb and or retain aluminium more in their brain than people who get sporadic form of the disease in their 70s, 80s, 90s. So again, we had the opportunity to look at 12 brain tissues uh, from people with Alzheimer's, familial Alzheimer's disease, and this was one of those incredible moments when essentially virtually in every single one we found uh, what were and remain the highest levels of aluminium ever, ever measured in human brain tissues, essentially. In other words, people with familial, who died with a diagnosis of familial Alzheimer's disease, their brains were loaded with aluminium. Now, to go back to the autism story, in the familial Alzheimer's disease brain, the aluminium was associated with neurons. It was associated with lots of neuronal death, cell death, neuronal death. We did not see the same sort of things we saw in the autism brain tissue. Interesting. So we, but what we are, of course, seeing is that what really convinced me that in these individuals, something about their genetics was making was was making sure that they retained really high levels of aluminium in their brain tissue. And if you've got these sorts of levels of a neurotoxin in your brain it is not possible that it does not contribute to neurodegeneration. And, you know, I went so far in an editorial following that paper, which was published in May last year, to say that in the normal lifetime of an individual, let's say up to 100 years, I'd predict that if there was no aluminium in the brain, there would be no Alzheimer's disease. You know, this, it, these data were enough now after after 25 years of working in the subject to make up one's mind about it. This is without question a role for aluminium in Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's much more further advanced than the autism story. The autism is the very first yeah. paper, very first paper in this subject area. But we have been publishing research and others have as too on aluminium in human brain tissue and aluminium in Alzheimer's disease for 30, 40 years. It's just that we then found the missing piece of that jigsaw, the familial Alzheimer's disease work, and it just fitted absolutely with a role for aluminium in the disease. Wow. So if, if we're talking about, um, obviously we're talking about autism and aluminum affecting different um, parts of the brain, uh, Alzheimer's affecting the neurons and other parts of the brain. I mean, bottom line here, oh. if, you're, if you're getting to the point that Alzheimer's, um, or sorry, that aluminum is absolutely implicated in Alzheimer's, which which I tend to agree with, and I, I don't think there's as well. There's obviously debate about it, but amongst our circle, uh, you know, people have known that for a while. But now moving on, I mean, what do we do about that, right? So obviously, trying to avoid aluminum exposure mm. is one thing, but have you sort of tapped tapped into ways to detoxify aluminum from the body? Yeah, let's I, let's just go back one sure. step and then sure. we'll talk about that and the one step i want to go back is when we look at 
autism or when we look at Alzheimer's. So in Alzheimer's disease, there is really significant neurodegeneration. You are looking at massive loss of neurons in specific areas of the brain. But of course, the disease has already progressed to its limit. A person has died of the complications of the disease, and we are then looking at that tissue. Now, in the case of autism, the, the, the donors that we received did not die of autism. Right, they right, had right. A, they had a, they had, um, let's call it a disease, people with autism might not like that, but let, they have a condition, an autism spectrum disorder, which uh, is ongoing in their life, and for some reason they died of something else. For example, several of them died, I think, um, from an epileptic seizure, etc. But they did not, they did, the condition was sort of ongoing with them. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Alzheimer's disease, we're looking, we're, we're only looking at something which is at the end. Now, it does raise a sort of question to it because you see, in Alzheimer's disease, before the person died, they had 20, 25 years of their neurons and their brain connections going wrong. In other words, some of the sorts of things that might be going wrong in autism spectrum disorders may not be dissimilar to what's happening in older people in Alzheimer's disease before they die. We're just looking and at early might, stage versus late stage, well, essentially. You know, <laughs> if, you, yeah, if you really wanted to you know, put the sensational headline, you would, you would make the suggestion that some people have that autism is infant Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. And who knows, to be absolutely honest with you. I, well, I mean, the, 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 only way, the only way to really know is to sort of say, well, okay, great, we've, we've diagnosed you with pre-Alzheimer's and we know for certain that in 30 years' time you're going to get Alzheimer's and somehow we want to measure uh, aluminum in your brain at this point. But, but of yeah, course, that's not what, really scientifically we valid. Yeah. And we can't do it for ethical reasons. So, um, yeah. All right. So, but, um, you, yeah. but the point you, yeah, but let's, let's now then go yeah. to your other point because that's where we can make some sense of this. Because we know from our research, and actually, this goes right back to my PhD research when I showed that silicon protected against the toxicity of aluminium in fish, we know that the element silicon is the natural protector against aluminium toxicity. And what our most recent research has led us to is that we know that if you drink a mineral water, which is rich in silicon, now the form of silicon in that mineral water is called silicic acid. It's a silicon atom surrounded by four OH groups. It's a neutral molecule. It has literally no chemistry, neither inorganic or organic except with aluminium, which is the chemistry that we discovered. Huh. Well, we didn't, we didn't discover it because it was there, but we, we found it and published about it in the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s, and have done so ever since. So we know that silicic acid can go into the body and help to remove aluminium from the body. And indeed, everything we know tells us that it will remove aluminium from all of the body. Wow. It's not, a, it's not a magic bullet. It's not something that happens in a day or a week or a month. 
is something which happens over long periods of time of regular drinking of silicon-rich mineral waters. In fact, you know, I've got one here on my desk in front of me. I've been drinking it ever since I started working on this <laughs> work because I, I, I consider the best way for a silicon-rich mineral water to be helpful to you is, in, is as a prevention against a body burden of aluminium. But it can also be used I believe at least in the very, very early stages of a disease to perhaps stop that disease from progressing any further. So for example, we know there are people who get um, something called mild cognitive impairment, which might occur in their 40s and 50s. We know that these individuals are quite susceptible to going on to getting Alzheimer's. More than 50% of them will get Alzheimer's disease. But if we were to put that group of individuals on long-term drinking of a silicon-rich mineral water and then see how they progressed or not towards Alzheimer's, it would be a test of the aluminium-Alzheimer's hypothesis. Right, and, uh, which, which of real... course would take some time, right? I mean, it's... You, Absolutely. You... But it, you, you're probably talking about... You're probably talking three to five years before you would know if some something was happening and then of course it has to continue after that you can't right. really stop it, i mean it, it it one of the things that we think see our studies to date and we've done this with people two studies in alzheimer's disease we've just finished one in multiple sclerosis which we've just published but they've all been a maximum i think of 12 or 13 weeks of drinking the silicon rich mineral water they've given us some really positive evidence that we believe you can lower the body burden of aluminium significantly, even in that shorter period of time. So I think that if we were able to do this over two or three years, we would be able to show using the urinary excretion of aluminium method I talked to you about whether mm -hmm. the body burden had been reduced. And then we'd be able to look for progression, not only of Alzheimer's, perhaps other, other conditions as well. I mean, one of the questions you can imagine since we published the autism study is I have had a thousand people telling me, what can I do about it? I, and my simple answer has been, well, listen, if your infant, your child, you, uh, or indeed, you know, your adult with an autism spectrum disorder is willing to drink water and drink about a liter a day, drink a silicon rich mineral water. It can only be helpful. Right, I mean, no, no, no negative side effects or potential complications, absolutely obviously. Not. I mean, it's, it's no, water. Absolutely none. And that's why we are going down this road. What we're looking for, of course, you, you don't want to have to go and have injections of things. You don't want to have to have some things which are maybe invasive or dangerous in other ways. You don't want to take something which is going to influence other essential minerals or parts of what you need for your normal physiology. Silicic acid can only directly facilitate the removal of aluminium. Of course, if aluminium is interfering with another process and then you take aluminium away from that, it can affect other systems, but that should be in a positive way. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I know from my side, uh, you know, we start looking at um, things like methylation and certain body processes, metabolic processes, where uh, heavy metals like aluminum definitely impede with enzyme mm, functions. Don't forget, alumin like aluminium, yeah, aluminium is not a heavy metal. Don't forget. Uh, it's, not, it's a light metal. That's, what, okay. that's, why you, you're, that's why your airplane doesn't crash when you, when you fly over here. Okay. Well, that's also good <laughs> to know because I think the, the nomenclature... The <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the heavy metals are the mercuries, the leads, or something got off the top of my head. What the other cadmium? You know, right, right, right. Essentially, go by go by the atomic number. Atomic number of aluminium is twenty-seven. So, you know, it's uh, or the atomic weight of aluminium is twenty-seven. Mm-hmm. So that tells you it, it's a light metal. So people do get a little bit confused sometimes on that. But well, you're right about uh, you're right about other systems. Of course, if you dis, if you ha- are being intoxicated by mercury, and you are able to remove that by a particular chelation method or something of that sort, then you may then see other changes which were not specifically related to that in the first instance, but have been essentially remedied by removing the mercury and then allowing another system to move into place. So yes, everything is connected. You, Absolutely. you know that because that's, that's what your holistic medicine is all about. It's, it's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So um, do, have you found uh, um, anything else? Uh, I mean, you know, we, well, let me back up a step. When you talk mm-hmm. about um, silicic acid and silica, I think a lot of yeah. my crowd tend to sort of then go, well, what about horsetail? Uh, what about yeah. some of the grasses and whatnot? Because we obviously have biological yeah. silicon you know, everywhere. Does that, it doesn't do the same thing? Yeah, I mean, the problem, I mean, listen, it would be, it would be fantastic if any of these silica, so-called silica supplements or silicon supplements could do the same thing. We have looked at literally hundreds of them. And in fact, we produced a, a, um, a silicon fact sheet relatively recently because I get asked the same question over and over again. The, the way in which silicic acid works is that it follows water. So when you drink a silicon-rich mineral water, the uh, silicic acid almost immediately goes into your bloodstream and it more or less reproduces the concentration that was actually in the mineral water. It is this high concentration that is needed to facilitate the removal of aluminium. You know, the, the ratio of silicic acid to aluminium could be 100 to 1, something of that sort, in order to produce a small but stable thing we call a hydroxyaluminum silicate, which the, fil- the kidney can then filter into the urine. So this high concentration of silicic acid is what is absolutely essential, and none of the silica supplements can deliver that. And, you know, which which, make, which makes sense. I mean, it's a, it's a different medium in a sense, right, where you're well, talking... Well, you're, you see, yeah, we work on horsetail. It's one of my favorite plants. I've published on this beautiful plant because we've published on it because we're interested how does it, how does it deposit silica in its tissues. Mm-hmm. And how, one of the ways that we look at that is we take the horsetail plant and we digest it in the two strongest mineral acids on the planet, sulfuric acid and, and uh, nitric acid, in a microwave oven. All of the organic material is completely digested. We filter that, and guess what's left over? The silica, beautiful silica, beautiful uh, structures of where it is in the plant, almost like a photographic negative of where it is in the plant. But that also tells you, doesn't it, how inert it is. Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, if if you can't digest it in two of the strongest mineral acids on the planet in a microwave oven, it isn't going to digest in your stomach, even with the added biology that's in your stomach. Yes, you get the tiny amounts of silicic acid out, but you don't get the rush of silicic acid that's needed. Wow. And it's the same for all the silica supplements. Most of the silica supplements are colloidal silica. It annoys me very much when they even use our research to sell themselves um, because. You know, I'm not saying that they can't do you some other good. 
We're not yeah, perhaps that. for your skin saying, or, or or hair or stuff like yeah, that, but we're exactly not talking relative right. to aluminum. We're, it's a different picture, we're right? We're talking about facilitating the removal of aluminum from the body. That's exactly right. Okay, that, so you guys... That, you need silicic acid. All right, so you guys listening out there, hopefully you caught that one because I know a lot of you are big fans of horsetail. Uh, so uh, horsetail is not going let, to do this, but... <laughs> I can, I can let you have the silicon fact sheet so you can put it on your... On, yeah, uh, sure. In, in, and, your, in your resources. Yeah, so uh, you're busy now trying to get funding for a big trial. Um, I, you know, perhaps you can shed a bit more light on that. The, you know, what, what's going on with you right now? Um, what would you like me to sort of share with our listeners and, and my network? Um, you know, what's, what's pressing in your world? Yeah, I just realized what the time was. Uh, yeah, and that's why um, I want to yeah. wrap it up. I'm also conscious of your time today as well. Yeah, sure. Thank you for that. You just reminded me because I, I, I was enjoying talking about it. <laughs> um, listen, we, we, right now it is almost impossible for us to get funding to look at aluminium and human health from any of the conventional places. We cannot get it from our research councils here in the UK, from the government, we, the industry are not interested in this. Even the large charities, I am afraid, are too much, too much dependent upon the large companies and pharmaceuticals and industry to go along with us. So philanthropy has become our major source of income at the moment. And, and thank you to the many people that make donations and to some of our large sponsors, like you've probably heard of them, Children's Medical Safety Research Institute, who mm -hmm. enable us to do the world-class research that we do. Right now, you know, we are not in, we have not begun a new funding campaign, but we have some ideas along the lines of what I've already spoken about that we'd like to do. Personally, I would like to be able to identify those individuals who are clearly more susceptible to aluminium than others. And I think that is probably the next big story because it will, it will identify uh, across a range of conditions. It won't be specific necessary to autism or Alzheimer's or multiple sclerosis where we're also working and or, or even diabetes where we also work. It may give us some general indications about some people who are simply more susceptible than others because of their particular genetic makeup. And if we knew to know this, that would be fantastic because then people would be informed and they could make their own decisions. And hopefully, you know, you make a decision to drink a silicon-rich mineral water, which is what I do every day, mm -hmm. to protect yourself anyway. Because, you know, one thing we should all, we all have to realize is the government, no one is going to protect us from aluminium. No, um, not at all. I mean, that, that would be a radical about face from really the way that we live and our medical <laughs> system entirely, right? <laughs> yeah, it would indeed. And, and they, right, right now, they make an awful lot of money out of illness. Absolutely, there is, yeah. There is, there, there is no money in people being well, I don't think. So. I've been saying that for uh, a really long time, so uh, I think we're in yeah. agreement there. So, Chris, uh, yeah. I'm going to let you get going. I know you have to, yeah. you have to shoot, but um, we've, we've gone just over an hour, and I know that we could both speak about this for a lot longer. Um, so, so thank we'll you so much. Sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And obviously, anything that does come up, you know, once you do get into the funding campaign uh, and whatnot, um, I'm happy to share that. Uh, I will also talk to you off air about um, projects that I have, and, and I think that there might be a really good fit uh, with that as well. Um, you know, I'm all Great. about all about helping helping others, and you know, planetary and uh, biological detoxification, personal detoxification is really a special area of mine. And um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know that 
the toxic burden, whatever type of toxin that is, uh, once we have this accumulated load, uh, really wreaks havoc on the body as we age. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so thanks so much for the work that you're doing. Mm. And uh, we'll definitely touch base soon. Uh, for you guys listening out there, I hope you enjoyed the show. And as always, if you did enjoy the show, please uh, subscribe, leave a review, uh, give us a shout out, and you can contact us at support at holistichealthmasterclass.com. 